Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. In this episode of the Catalyst Podcast, we get to meet Dr. Bhattacharya. He's a psychiatrist in private practice for over 36 years, but you wouldn't know it. He has the energy and vivacity of people half his age. He's the founder of the Empathy Clinic. This clinic uses empathy to diagnose and treat a variety of mental health disorders in individuals and couples. It's truly unique. It's emphasis on empathy, balance, integration of the spirit and soul, and the pursuit of optimal wellness is unheard of. He specializes in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And in this episode, we get to talk about a lot of existential things like using empathy as a common tool to relate to each other in our human form. We talk about measuring empathy. We talk about how you can apply a simple exercise to reciprocate empathy in couples or in friendship. We talk about compassion fatigue in healthcare professionals and how if we just looked at more empathy towards ourselves and others, this might be the glue that elevates us to a higher level of well-being. So enjoy this really meaningful conversation about big topics. And thank you again for listening to the Catalyst Podcast. Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. I have such an honor to be in the Zoom presence of Dr. Ashok Bhattacharya. Bhattacharya. I knew I would mispronounce it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it justice now. He is a Canadian psychiatrist and so influential in the empathy space. I'm not even going to introduce him because I want him to give you a taste of what empathy is. And I would love to hear more about the wine analogy you just spoke of. So please introduce yourself, Dr. Ashok. Well, thank you so much, Lara. Uh, my name, is, I think, is pronounced Ashok Bhattacharya. I'm the founder of the Empathy Clinic, which is an idea I started up some decades ago um, as a psychiatrist. Now, sadly and tragically, um, psychiatry doesn't necessarily emphasize empathy, which is a strange thing. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I offered to teach a, uh, an empathy course to my, my organization. I was kind of laughed out of the room. But it is, my, it is my absolute belief that empathy is teachable. And I'll reshare the wine analogy. And that is that if I give people a bottle of wine and say, here, have a sip, they might say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a nice uh, Chardonnay or Syrah. But then I'll show them the colors, the legs, the aroma, the taste, swirl it around, just don't swallow it quickly, and, and tell them about the orange of it and, and the nature of the feet of the people that squish those grapes, et cetera. And it, they, now they're experiencing it more. And for me, empathy is trying to experience what somebody else is feeling from their point of view more. So it never Ooh. stops. You're always going into the moreness of it. So how does that make you feel? And how does that make you feel? And what did you experience then? What did you think when that happened? And, and 
of feelings. And that continuous exercise is how I would say I try to empathize with people. The tough part, if I can just be lectury for a second longer, with empathy is to negate yourself. That means thinking, what would I do in that situation? Or if I were in their shoes, those are sympathetic ways to look at somebody, but we're actually not in somebody else's shoes because we're not them. We've not had their life. We've not had their story. We've not had their narrative. So when people come into our offices as physicians and say, I have a headache, yes, it could be an egregious problem with their brain, or it might be their social life, their emotional life, or their spiritual life. And I try to find that out. I'm going to leave it there for you to ask me another question. Wow, that's beautiful and so poignant when I see a lot of us practitioners heading down this path of realizing this oneness that you so eloquently talked about, really empathy being that oneness of sharing this human experience mm -hmm. and understanding that this is their own story and you're seeking just to understand more and to empathize more. It's almost a difficult thing to wrap your head around because like likewise I like to teach creativity that we all have that inside we just need to unlock ourselves and let it out it's already there I have a question about your empathy clinic and about teaching empathy have you ever had a kickback where doctors or health practitioners say well of course I'm empathetic I mean I already I already do that but now I'm 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 feeling like I'm too empathetic I'm burning out because I'm just giving and giving is there any any end to this moreness that you talk about well, let's first get a couple of definitions on the table. Empathy is, is a cognitive emotional experience where you're trying to get a snapshot of somebody else's experience. You don't have to do anything about it. You can empathize with someone, with someone and do nothing. The next stage is compassion. Compassion is when you actually begin to formulate something that you can do for that other person. And if we're doctors, it's, oh my gosh, this person's a bad situation. What can I do for them? I'll do it some tests. I'll maybe prescribe something, etc. And and the action of compassion is kindness. So I I think empathy is 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 getting the right answer. Compassion is formulating a solution, and kindness is what you actually do about that. But if you if you run it backwards, if you're seeing a guy who is absolutely uh, starving, and you give him movie tickets to to Top Gun. You're doing something kind that might be compassionate, but it doesn't empathize with his situation, right? Popcorn would be a better solution than the movie itself. So when we run it backwards, it becomes obvious that that when if you're throwing that dart, that empathy dart, um, the best thing you can do is find out what is that person's experience first before you start coming up with solutions. And I'll I'll leave it there. I love that. Makes a lot of sense. It does. It gives you more accuracy and precision just to understand that other human condition that we are, you know, trying to get our our head wrapped around. And I would like to understand you mentioned using empathy as a diagnostic and treatment tool. Tell me more about how you would you would teach that. Well, I think that's actually quite simple. When we go to med school, we learn to take something called a history. And history is, is a history of the person's uh, symptoms. But for me, it's a history of their entire life, what their birth was like, what their earliest childhood experiences were like, what their childhood uh, uh, successes and wins were, their teenage years. And so when we're seeing an adult in front of us, they have all of that packed away inside of them that is impinging on that symptom that I'm looking at trying to figure out what it is. 
So, so when I'm empathizing with them, I'm trying to enter and explore their experience from their point of view. Especially in my field of psychiatry, I'm seeing a lot of people who have, have post-traumatic stress issues. Mm -hmm. So as a diagnostic tool, um, I may end up with a course of psychotherapy, maybe even a medication, which I do use uh, somewhat sparingly, but at the same time, I do, there's value there. But again, it's about finding their problem that situate in their life and their experience. And when I start treating my clients, and I call them clients because they're really, I'm really emphasizing wellness here. Um, I'm trying to get them to feel safe with their experience. And if someone feels safe with their experience, it already begins to heal them. Oh, so true. And a feeling of safety is, is such a powerful human experience. And we learn that when we're little tiny babies in our parents' arms, that cuddling up and just feeling, even if we're a bit poorly, if we feel safe, that, that can start the healing process and push the immune system to help us to get better. And then, and as far as moving that forward, I use empathy to find out how my clients are doing. So I have some kind of check marks on how they started and where they're moving along. So there's a measurement, an empathic measurement of where they are now. And I had one client who came in and said, I'm really mad at you. I said, whatever for? She said, I used to go to the dentist all the time and not need any freezing. And now I need freezing. I feel more and it's your fault. You taught me how to feel more. I said, well, I don't think I taught you. I just helped you open that door yourself. I agree. I think in this recent time, we're learning a lot more about trauma, intergenerational trauma, epigenetic changes as a result of this. And we're open to a, di to a dialogue than more than we ever have. So your empathy teachings are really hitting home in new ways that I don't think we would have had three, four years ago. Um, I feel like a lot of us, especially in the medical training, are taught to suppress and repress and just, you know, get to the end and the diagnosis and the solution. And opening up that empathetic change, it is um, like alchemy, it's transformational. And when you have a safe space, like you said, it's healing. It, no matter what happens, there's there's this comfort of psychological safety. I would imagine you, as experienced as you are, probably get to that, that spot pretty quickly. I would imagine that you can attune to a lot of your clients' emotions. Um, what about practitioners that might struggle with setting that safety tone for their clients or patients? Well, I think I mean, that's a really great frame right there. I think safety does feels differently for all of us. And I'm gonna I'm gonna remind us of of my job as a as as a lifesaver in a swimming pool. And we have to look after our safety first before we jump into that water and try to save somebody else. I think it's a really key thing. Empathy is 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 not, it's not necessarily a quick thing. It can happen very quickly, but it can also take us time. And I think if we rush it, we actually break trust. And one of the most um, quick ways to break someone's trust is to ask someone to trust you. And I think <laughs> we have to earn that. And when we earn it, and we earn it by being empathic, and that can take that. I, I've had cases that have happened very, very quickly with some of my clients where they felt a, a quick trust. We've been able to do some quick work and they can get on their way. And, and of course, I've had people who, who have really needed to take their time and I have to be extraordinarily patient in waiting for them to feel ready to come to that place where they can begin to start to heal. And, and that's what's so beautiful about the work that we do. It's every moment is unique with different people. 
Yes. People often ask me, are you must be bored of you know dealing with depression and anxiety? And I say, absolutely not, because in a different person, it's a different thing. So it's always a new challenge to get to know that new person who has that particular problem and I can help them with their wellness. That is a really unique and beautiful reframe. I would say that your job sounds very amazing and fantastic, but I do have another question. In this day and age of healthcare moving more towards metrics and measuring progress, as a clinician myself who ventured into a functional holistic space where now I can take that time and patience with my with my patients, I can take that breathing space and allow them to go down their timeline at their own pace because the mileage will vary. Like you said, some of them might get right into that um, growth or that empathy space quickly. Others might take a while. They've got different history, you know? And so I am feeling much happier in this space where I can allow that time to be what it is and not worry about the big hospital looking at my metrics and how quickly I'm turning out patients. So you mentioned earlier that you like to measure empathy. Is there a way that you do measure the progress of each client you have, or do you just let them set the pace? Well, you know, I'm in charge of the therapy, so I have to set the pace of what someone can get. I will suggest the therapy pace to somebody. I've worked with some people um, three times a week um, uh, for, a, for, for maybe a number of months to see if that can get them stable. And once we find that stability, then we can taper that down to usually once a week that I work with most people. But I'm also extremely lucky. I, I run a private practice. I've actually never worked in a hospital. I'm kind of I mean, I did, of course, when I was going through my training and, and I did, uh, you know, I, I, I practiced as a, a GP a little tiny bit, then I got into psychiatry. But, um, you know, I was qualified as a psychiatrist at 29. Um, and I've never, I'm 62 now. So I've never, never looked back and thought, wow, I missed the hospital environment. So I have a lot of freedom to run my practice um, you know, the way that I can, the way that I want. And, and I'm super busy and I have lots of people waiting to see me. But I think, I think, how do you measure it? Um, it's what's really fascinating when you develop a, an empathic relationship with your clients is you do that together. And one of my fave questions with my clients is, if this was our first session right now, what would our issues be? And if they're saying, well, gee, I, you know, I had those issues in the beginning, but now I've got these issues now and, and this much smaller, we can refocus what we're doing and, and really work on those issues that are current for them now. And and then it always happens that my, so my clients will come to me when they're, they're they said, you know, I really think that I, I'm ready. And, and we talk about what readiness looks like. And, you know, post-therapy can be scary for some people. Because if you've been holding onto those training wheels all along, and then they have to come off and they've got a bicycle in the real world, you know, without necessarily that connection. Yes. So we have, we have some work on that kind of letting go process as well. And I think to, to, to my mind, you know, you get very connected to, to the experience of it and to your clients. But once you develop that team personship and the therapy, you're both measuring that all the time on a regular basis. Oh, this is beautiful. It's so parallel to a lot of the practitioners that are in functional holistic medicine. We have separated ourselves, many of us, because we were burned out in a conventional system and then found this nice second chapter of our career. So we do learn different tools. And one of those is, is stealing from the psychiatrist playbook, which is letting that patient and client set the pace 
and you're nurturing and guiding, but it's really a co-partnership and measuring those goals over and over again and reflecting back to how close are you? How far away? Is there new goals you want to set? Is this feeling comfortable to you? Is there something unusual happening in your body? As you know, um, emotions are very somatically based as well and can make us sick. Um, And so I would like to hear what you think, you know, if we could change our training for our young students and our young doctors, how can we make this more of a proactive, you know, training for them so that they don't get lost in the shuffle? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you you just asked a big question, but I'm going to pull out the one that I want to answer. (laughs) And I think that we, we get into medicine to help people usually, at least I hope that's true. And then we get into medicine and we learn about I mean, I wasn't trained about the common cold, but I was told about pheochromocytoma. So, so we learn about a lot of illnesses, and it becomes very illness-focused, where disease becomes our enemy, and illness is, is, is what happens. We see our, uh, our clients, we start calling them patients, and we start treating them like the illness that they have. And in psychiatry, it's particularly bad because we call a human being a schizophrenic, as opposed right. to a human who happens to have schizophrenia. And so now that disease has become their entire identity, um, right? You wouldn't call it someone who's had a heart attack, um, um, yes. an infarction. You'd call them a person who has had a heart attack. See, so 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 this is what I think is really really important is to realize that that no matter what, you know, we're treating human beings. Uh, human beings need to be treated like human beings, especially in healthcare when they're vulnerable, scared, and sick, and 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 sometimes terrified for their life. And when we when we put humanity and, and the humanizing back into the medicine, you know what happens? People get better faster and they stay well longer because yes. now we're putting in wellness into the story instead of illness into the story. Yes, we are emphasizing the, I think the proper thing is the wellness, the instead of highlighting what's wrong and, and what feels, as you know, brain our brains are predictive machines. We like to prime our brain and always find uh, narratives that support things to support that narrative of illness or disease. And that's hard with PTSD. And I would, I would venture to say a lot of uh, our students and doctors and residents in training feel that they suffer from PTSD, from all of the rigors. Um, empathy, like you said, can help us elevate going from good to great, which is so similar to creativity. It just unlocks the brain. So what, what kind of things do you do in your empathy clinic? Is this the clinic name for your clients and patients? Or do you work with health practitioners and help them as well? Well, I, 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 I help as many people as I can. Let's put it that way. Lots of people have questions about it. What I find interesting about empathy in general is that you've got sort of two camps. You've got people who think it's fluff. And you've got people who are really saying that they, we can use this sort of everywhere. I think um, I want to talk about PTSD and empathy just for a moment, if I may. Please. And I see PTSD as an empathy disorder. Yes, it's a memory disorder, but I also see it's an empathy disorder. And what I mean by that, if something happens to us, if um, if we get stuck in traffic and you're just explaining that to somebody else, we've all been stuck in traffic. And so people can empathize with being stuck in traffic. But if something truly egregious happens to us that is outside of the normal experience, our, our, our concerns that no one is going to believe or understand or appreciate what I went through. I'm now alienated and isolated from the story. And I'm afraid that if I tell someone, I'm going to be shamed and upset. And this happened with, with the revolution of um, sexual abuse and PTSD that really didn't hit the maps until 1986. And that's crazy when you think about that. Right. 
And I remember being in my residency as a student saying, trying to tell my professors who were teaching me, I think this woman has PTSD and not schizophrenia. And I was getting laughed at. Oh. And, so, and it was tough, right? Because I was you know, sensing this was the problem. And uh, I found out that I was, was correcting that sort of some years later. But and th- that I think that's been going on for a very long time. So I think I think when we're dealing with um, human beings, uh, especially in, in healthcare, especially in psychiatric healthcare, empathy is, is it's not just a tool that we have; it's the way that we should be. Wow, that is really poignant, and it's making me think that we are still decades or centuries away from understanding our whole condition. Think about how psychiatry has changed, right? just in your instance, and the labels that we assign are even changing and certain diagnostic criteria in the DSM changes. And, and here are, this is my little humble opinion is I don't think our brains really quite are big enough or under, will ever understand the total of the human condition. It's impossible. And to whittle it down to a, a one label, you, you have depression, you have anxiety. And like you said, maybe it's a loss of connection with another person and it's coming across as depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. And I just think that empathy is that glue that can bring that commonality, you know, um, and helping us understand that, you know, we aren't alone. It's, it's really something that's amazing to think that that could be a tool to help you know, bring everybody into a space together. Do you run groups? Have you ever tried using this as a group tool with some of your patients? Uh, no, I, I don't run groups. I, I do a lot of couple work. And I live mm-hmm. in a small town that has a very high divorce rate. And I was determined when I came to the town, I said, I, I need to figure out what this is. And I see, started to do a lot of uh, couples. So what I teach couples is what I call reciprocal empathy. So when we think of empathy, we typically think of someone being empathic towards somebody else. But why not two people being empathic towards each other? in a way that can create a sense of strength and durability in that relationship. And we all know the shows where we're seeing an old couple and they're finishing each other's sentences because they've been together for a hundred years. And that's, is that empathy? Well, in a way, but to be able to, to be able to have reciprocity with it. I mean, just imagine two people are having a fight and the, the question they ask you is, what did I do to make you so upset? I'd like to understand that. They're asking each other that question instead of, you don't get me, you did this, you did Instead of what did I do to make you upset? And that's the conversation. It's probably more likely that will result in, in, a, in a smoother uh, moment 10 minutes later than if they are accusing each other of what they don't understand and what that person did to them. See, see the shift there? Yes, I love that. That's a that's a very applicable tool, you know, in communication, not just with a spouse, but with friendship oh. and learning how to communicate more clearly with a fellow human that, you know, in, I can imagine even in a co-working situation where we have a tendency to have codependent behavior patterns that can happen in an office setting, especially in healthcare where, you know, there's that one coworker and, you know, everybody develops this kind of almost toxic or dysfunctional way of existing like a family. And you can see patterns that play out and how inspiring that would be to hold space for empathy and reflect on how we communicate with each other and how how possibly we could contribute. That requires an elevated amount of emotional intelligence, I would say. Well, it absolutely does. But I think human beings are intelligent and human beings can start thinking and seeing themselves once you provide that platform of awareness. I mean, once we, as soon as we invented the mirror, 
we could see ourselves at, outside of standing over a, a, a clear lake. We could actually start seeing ourselves and then looking at ourselves. Once we invented the camera, we could start capturing ourselves. Once we invented the movie, we could see ourselves in movement. And a lot of athletes, for example, want, want very precise videotaping them doing, uh, especially if they're doing something like with a tennis racket or a golf club, because they, they, you can't see yourself from that perspective outside of yourself. And that's, yes. why we as, and that's why people like coaches and clinicians are so helpful to people because someone, you're coming to someone who can see you outside of yourself. And then wouldn't it be cool if you could actually have, a, well, we actually have a videotape of you being you and we're going to analyze you from, and you can lucky watch yourself outside of yourself. That's a very powerful tool to have. So empathy really is self-empathy is trying to look at yourself from an outside uh, place inside yourself and that, that little negation, don't, don't get too caught up in it. Just look at yourself as, as objectively as you can. You kind of semi-asked a question earlier on that I didn't answer well enough. So I'm going to go back to it. And that's the moreness thing. Mm -hmm. And just because someone might be, maybe, maybe if their empathy is here, at a low level or medium or high, you've got to be careful empathizing. Because if you don't, you're going to take it home with you and you're going to kick the dog. And we have empathy is something that we kind of need a dimmer switch on so we can turn it up when we need it and turn it down. And we actually do have that in the caudate nucleus of our brain. So dentists, they've done some little um, fMRIs on, on dentists where they've, um, when, when they're talking to the patient, their empathy is high. When they're drilling, it's low. And when they're given a lollipop, it's high. And that means that we can actually reduce our, 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 our experience of what's this person going through so we can get the job done. Yes. The job is done. And we actually, we should have this. So isn't that a brilliant way of looking at, at protecting our empathy stores so that we're not getting compassion fatigue and are running out of kindness because we're getting overwhelmed. And I think this is especially true for healthcare workers uh, uh, like us, because we, we generally are empathic, even though we have high rates of uh, psychopath uh, in, in, in MD, but we're generally very empathic people. We want, we're people pleasers, we want to help. You've got to protect your, that space. Your Brilliant. Brilliant. Br brilliantly said, and so on par with the stats on burnout and uh, lack of self-compassion. I feel like the healthcare uh, workers studies have shown that they have a lot of compassion towards others, but it's the self-empathy, self-compassion is really low. And when you start to bolster that up and reflect on yourself to take care of yourself, uh, it shows that burnout is less. If you are more self-compassionate, you know, uh, you take care of yourself knowing when to say enough is enough, when to get a break, when to have more sleep. Um, I was just writing so many things down. I love the idea of a dimmer switch. I love metaphors. And that's a beautiful metaphor. I'm going to reflect on that often, you know, and, and you know, studies show dentists have a, high, a hard career because they have some of the highest uh, risks of depression because they cause pain. Um, and so it's interesting that it, it lives in that caudate nucleus. They can turn it down and up. And um, what about, you know, have you ever encountered a situation where you felt like maybe the person is closed to empathy? They don't want to, they feel too unsafe. And they just, I'm thinking of a healthcare practitioner that might not want to reflect on their own self-compassion. And that might be out of the scope of what we can talk about. It might require deeper therapy, but is that a common thing that you see? Well, um, the absence of empathy is narcissism. Mm. So True. people who are narcissistic actually have trouble empathizing with other people. 
mm-hmm. they might be flooded with their own feelings. I and mean, I could do a whole talk on Oh, narcissism. yeah. The opposite of narcissism is imposter syndrome. Mm. And at least according to me. So I think when, when people are, are self-aggrandizing and really think that they're larger than life and everything they touch, it turns to magic. The opposite of that is people who have all the skills but doubt it and self-doubt and kind of shrink away and feel that, oh my gosh, everyone else is more qualified than I am. So maybe I'm not the best person for the job. And they usually- Oh, I see that a lot. We see that a lot in healthcare for sure. Narcissism and and imposter syndrome are kind of on a continuum of of narcissism up here and imposter syndrome down there. I do work with some narcissistic patients and uh, and they're tough because when they come into my office- um, you know, they have very high expectations of what I can do for them. And what I do is a bit of a bloodbath. <laughs> I have to dismantle their personality. Ooh. And once that's once that once you have uh, inside, it's this curled up little frightened, mm-hmm. insecure person who desperately needs attention, the right kind of attention and needs to be pulled out. And then they can become a client. Because that because wow. when they're coming into the office, they're not ready to, to engage you because they're hiding behind that narcissistic mantle. Yes. And and when I start empathizing, really, a, I would call it aggressive, bombing them with empathy. You can see them, they either leave, can't handle it. But I can tell you within three months, most of them turn around. That's amazing. And I, I always know when they've turned around, when they come in and I say, and how are you doing? And they start crying. I say, are you all right? They say, I feel feelings I've never felt before. I walked past a homeless person, reached in my pocket and gave him 20 bucks. And I don't know why. I said, you're starting to feel empathy. That's what's happening. Wow. That's amazing. And also very painful. Feelings and emotions are not fun to feel. Not fun. And so, yeah, I, I have a bit of a reputation for working with narcissistic people. And it's so I've had my fill, if you will. And I'm yes. Not- Punch card is full. (laughs) I'm I'm not quitting yet, but I think it's, I just look at narcissism as, as, as an empathy disorder as well, that some of them are entirely fixable. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. What about imposter syndrome? I'm very curious what your thoughts on how we can help, uh, you know, bring awareness to imposter syndrome as, as on a spectrum of an empathetic disorder. I would like to hear that. Well, ever so briefly, I'll give you the micro lecture on self-esteem and confidence. So self-esteem is is all of your accomplishments that you've succeeded and that you feel good about. Confidence is the capacity to predict a positive outcome in the future. If you've got 10 degrees and you're well-known, you've written three books and all that, you can still lack confidence because you're not sure what's going to happen next. And the problem with our society is that we have some people who seem to have a lot of confidence. They have no self-esteem. They're faking it. They're pretending. As other people have lots of self-esteem, but they actually don't have a lot of confidence. And so I think I, I, I spend a lot of time helping people understand if they have imposter syndrome to, to look at their 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 self-esteem from an objective point of point of view, and then get them to practice little confidence moves, like ask your neighbor for a cup of sugar. Yes. Or my favorite is ask three people for help before I see you next. And if you don't, I'll see you, but we're going to keep keep on that. It's getting someone to believe they can reach out. Yes. And, and also I find, oh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I, I also find making tiny promises to yourself and fulfilling them is another great way just to increase confidence because self-efficacy is huge when you know that, well, I said I would take a five minute walk and I did that. You know, it's tiny, but you did it. And I think sometimes those tiny things, maybe, maybe that's true of it. It, 
can be translative in the brain somehow that shows that you do and are able to carry out things. Well, just just to brag just for a second here, I practice confidence all the time. And and I do that musically. I'm a musician. And so I, I, I go to bars sometimes on, uh, well, about once a week and I get up on stage and I sing and I play and I play guitar solos and, and they're completely unrehearsed. And, and I'm just going to get up and just, just shred it out. And Love I think it. the more I do that, the more confident I'm going to get when I get back to my office and working with my clients, because, because confidence is something you can actually practice. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, if you tell yourself, I'm going to get up there. It's going to be fun. I'm going to at least enjoy myself. I'm going to do as good a job as I can. And it's going to be okay. Yes. I'm, confident. I'm predicting a positive outcome. If I get up and they're saying, my guitar scene's going to break, I'm going to go off key, I'm going to forget the lines, I'm going to play badly. I'm, I'm predicting a negative outcome. And guess what happens? I'm not going to have a positive outcome because I'm telling myself the direction mm-hmm. I'm going to go in. So I think practicing confidence is something that's really, really helpful for people to do. Yes, this is one of my favorite things uh, because this is where it gets into that realm of creativity. And by the way, I love your videos. I've watched them. They're just so fun. I love seeing another practitioner just embrace their own creativity and have fun with it. Uh, This is something that's so powerful in a small group and some of these workshops I do just to get all of us playing like a kid again and drawing bad art and just doodling because you take out that expectation of productivity and judgment out of anything creative. I think we don't learn this as kids or we learn this as adults. Kids don't have judgment. They just create because it's fun. They get to move their body. They sing on stage. They will dance at a friend's wedding because they're five and they don't care. And somehow as adults, we forget that. And so to get all of us in a room, one of my favorite things is to have them create and see that the world doesn't stop. You don't lose your reputation. You have fun. And like you said, it makes you a better clinician. You you really enjoy those feelings of euphoria. And, and studies have supported that in neuroscience, that it has a long-lasting effect into your day-to-day career. Um, and I love that you do it once a week. Are you, are you contemplating any more frequent uh, musical attempts or just once a week is enough for you? No, I used to play in a full-time rock band. That's how I put myself through med school. And uh, I have a recording studio in the house, so I, I write music as well. But um, um, as far as probably perform, it's been COVID, right? So it's been a little bit mm-hmm. tough to do that. But uh, actually meeting a guy tonight, we might be putting another band together. So we'll, I'll let ah, you know. Please let me know. I know you've written a few books, though, right? I, I, I love creating stuff. So yeah, I've written a few books. I, I wrote a book called Cake. It's about reciprocal empathy. I another wrote another book called uh, Deep Fried Nerves, which is about burnout in a physician. It's a novel. And what I'm interested in mostly is, is if, you look at, if you look at writing and books as packages of empathy, think about it. Someone wrote a book 100 years ago. They're gone now. But you can pick up that book and read how they felt what they thought, what their fantasy life was like. That's like they've left this empathy package behind for us to enjoy. So I'm a little obsessed with that, I know, but I think that empathy is a way of of not just sharing with each other in in, in real time, but also sharing with each other when we're gone so that we can continue that experience of, of, of just making the human condition shareable. Beautiful. Empathy is a legacy. It is. It's a legacy that you certainly have brought to my attention. I I love everything that you do on your social media on LinkedIn. And it's really made me think twice about empathy as more of a priority that we should have in our life. Um, 
And I just want to say thank you for being being a guest and having this conversation. It's so important. It makes me want to reach out and measure empathy in new ways and think about it <laughs> in a different way. So in closing, I would say what would let me ask you this. What would we find you doing on a free Saturday? And you can't answer playing music. I'm, I'm looking for something different. Do you have anything little uh, quirky or anything new, a new hobby that you're looking at? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a cyclist and a runner. So I'm often out there doing a lot of physical activity. I've got a lot of energy. I've got to burn it off. Otherwise, I won't sleep. But I love nature. So I often bring my camera with me. And if I can take a picture of a little insect or a flower or something, I try to imagine what it's like to be a snail, for example, or a leaf um, or something. So I've, I practice empathy with sperm whales and, and all kinds of things. I am really trying to imagine what that, what experience. So if I'm out and about, um, especially in nature, that nature is so empathic, right? Nature is constantly listening to itself, feeling itself, talking to itself, communicating. Nature's done a great job of empathizing with itself kind of until we came along, right? <laughs> True. And, right? And so I think if I'm on a Saturday, I'm out in nature just uh, just learning, learning empathy from nature. Oh my goodness. You're again, inspiring me. I bet it would be cool to have a nature walk with you. I mean, <laughs> I can imagine, I can just see it now that you'd have us get down on the ground and like look from an angle and imagine being a snail and how the <laughs> sliminess would feel and that rock. I mean, it is a fun exercise. I bet kids would really love a nature walk with you. This Absolutely. is amazing. Yeah. I've definitely done that with kids. Uh, all my kids have to put up with that. And so they look at nature very passionately. Well, we are all better for knowing you and your empathy clinic. Thank you so much for this time. Where can our listeners get more of this, more of the empathy, more of your work? Well, I, I, they can look at my my website, uh, theempathyclinic.com, and, and all my links are there. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the, my most busiest and favorite social media. I'm on there either commenting or doing posts. And I try to put my posts um, relatively lighthearted, but also making an empathy point so people can get a little takeaway from it as well. That is what I appreciate most is you're very active. You're, I, I think, I imagine you as an octopus of energy. You have so much energy to participate in conversations. You're one of my favorite, if not the favorite person to follow on LinkedIn, because you have insight, but you have really fun posts and very humanistic posts. And it's really nice to get in conversation with you in the same circle. So definitely thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and your experience. It's been wonderful to learn from you. Thank you. And uh, I hope this is our last conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to work with you in this way. And you know, do, do me a favor, pass on the good word about empathy. Yes. That is a great way to put a period at the end of this conversation. Pass on the word about empathy, especially as a nice dimmer switch that maybe we should turn it up a little bit. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank and you, everybody check out the Empathy Clinic. And until next time, keep coloring outside the lines so you can be a catalyst in your own transformation. Thank you. Thank you.